Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's speech to the nation on Thursday, in which he likened Putin to Hamas in their determination to exterminate democracy in their neighbor's country. But Biden did not extend the analogy to our domestic politics, where the Trump cult in the House are demonstrating their fealty to Putin in their determination to cut aid to Ukraine and their contempt for democracy as the insurrectionists insist they won the last election as they work to rig the next one. Joining us is Victoria Norse, a professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center and the executive director of the Center on Constitutional Studies at Georgetown Law, a nominee for the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit from 2014 to 2015. She served as counsel to Vice President Joe Biden and prior to that served as an appellate lawyer in the Justice Department and special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Her latest book is The Impeachments of Donald Trump, an introduction to constitutional argument, and the latest article at Ms. Magazine is The Supreme Court's Blindness to Gender Violence. Then we'll look into Biden's $105 billion request of aid to Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, Taiwan, and the border, which was sent to a leaderless house with no one constitutionally able to act on it. Joining us is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. We'll discuss his article at The Guardian, The Ukraine War is in a New Phase. Biden must rethink the U.S. position. Then finally, we'll assess how much third-party candidates will swing the close 2024 election to Trump and speak with David Daly, a senior fellow at For Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy and unrigged how Americans are battling back to save democracy. A digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia, he's the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. We'll discuss his article at The Guardian, Why Do Eight Radicals Hold Power Over the Entire U.S. House of Representatives? And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, and armed and angry followers are paralyzing our legislative branch and threatening to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judicial branch. We are in a fight between crazy America and normal America, which we have to win. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Victoria Norse, who's a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and the executive director of the Center on Congressional Studies at Georgetown Law, a nominee for the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. From 2014 to 2015, she served as counsel to Vice President Joe Biden and prior to that served as an appellate lawyer in the Justice Department and special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Her latest book is The Impeachment of Donald Trump, An Introduction to Constitutional Argument, 
And the latest article at Ms. Magazine is The Supreme Court's Blindness to Gender Violence. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victoria Norse. Thank you so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden uh, made a somewhat delayed speech about Ukraine, which now, of course, folded into the war now going on between Israel and Hamas. But he talked at the, at the beginning of his speech to the nation that it was that we are at an inflection point, in effect, making the case that foreign policy is a priority at the moment. And he went on to say that the United States has to stand behind Israel and Ukraine in the face of Russia and Hamas, who were trying to, quote, completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. And then he went on to say, quote, we cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. Now, needless to say, the uh, the Kremlin spokesperson is, is huffing and puffing about that, saying it's uh, untoward. How dare you talk to a, a leader like that? To my mind, Victoria, Biden could have taken it further, and perhaps he did it out of politeness. But isn't there a Putin caucus in this country? In other words, tyrants and anti-democratic movements, which are really what the real contest in the world is today when it's no longer an ideological contest between communism and capitalism. It's a contest between frail democracies and the encroachments of autocrats and kleptocrats. So we have a problem with democracy in our government, do we not? Not just having a dysfunctional house, but in effect, there's a kind of pro kutin caucus as well. Well, I think you've put a finger on something that has been going under the radar, but that we need to emphasize. And I think, um, finally, the converging crises of our own democracy and the world are at a point where people need to join together to fight what is uh, attacks, um, what are attacks on our democracy here at home. And, you know, the Putin forces have engaged and they did engage in misinformation in the last elections. This is well known. It's been in the press for years. People have forgotten about it. There are members of the House, the very House that does not have a leader, um, who have actually supported Putin-esque causes in the United States and have supported claims that uh, effectively um, inspire white supremacy. And violence. This week we saw that some members, moderate Republicans, are fed up with the fear tactics that we now know from Mitt Romney's book. So, yes, I think that although it's terrible to have so many crises at the same time, sometimes crises provide a moment of serious reflection. And the president is right to say that this is an inflection point for democracy in the world and at home. Well, the fact that uh, over half of the House Republicans do not accept the results of the last election, that in itself is inherently anti-democratic. If, if you, you don't accept the results of an election because you don't like the outcome, is that where we're heading? Yeah, I mean, I think that they, I find this astonishing. You know, my mom was a Republican who was a social progressive and fiscal conservative as many independents are in the United States. And she would have just been appalled if she were alive today at what is going on in the Republican Party because it is anti-democratic. I mean, that generation lived through World War II. 
that they, the, the fact that young people actually can't see the danger, you know, some of these younger members like Matt Gates can't see the dangers of what they're doing, and that moderate members other than Mitt Romney do not seem to be able to stand up against it. It's really troubling, but it is some a mess they have made. I think some of them would like to say things that are different from Trump, but they've been terrorized by a faction. And I'm hoping that the faction will now be outed sufficiently with this very visible failure to have a Speaker of the House at a time the country is looking and the world is looking to America for leadership. But it's clear, isn't it, uh, Victoria Norris, that Donald Trump, in in effect, is behind all of this. I mean, he's there's no question that Jim Jordan is his protege or his his loyal toady, no matter how you want to describe it. So, in a, in effect, we came very close to having Donald Trump controlling the House of Representatives, and there's still a, a real possibility he become president again. So he would therefore control two branches of government. And you can also argue that because of the people he put on the Supreme Court, there's been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court, uh, thanks to uh, Trump and Leonard Leo. So I think this picture is a lot more alarming if you broaden it out. Yes, it's a hard thing to find anything more alarming these days. I thought, you know, a few years ago we had hit a low. But sometimes you have to go to the unthinkable, as in your personal life, to actually stop. And I think people need to really understand this isn't rhetoric. What happened from January 6th uh, has not healed. It is very present in the House. The same people who, you know, there's a direct line from what happened on January 6th to the threats being made against members that are truly, if you listen to them, and people should listen to them, frightening. Now they say, I'm not going to commit violence, and then on the next in the next minute, they tell them they're going to make their lives miserable by haunting them at hair salons for their lives. But they are harrowing. And it's because that faction now believes that, you know, they believe Donald Trump will win. They're very, they're hermetically sealed in their own world. They see no need for compromise. That's why Jordan would go through, why would anyone go through three votes where you were losing over and over again worse? Because they cannot see the other side. They have a kind of righteous mind. Um, there's a professor at NYU who's written about the righteous mind and individuals who let, you know, their emotions color, and they're all very volatile people, you'll notice, <laughs> um, let their emotions color the world, are likely to um, engage in very, very, you know, dangerous behavior because they don't see the consequences. They, they are, I am running up the hill for a virtuous crusade. They're crusaders, essentially, right? They think they are on the side of the right and the good, and they cannot see the other side. Um, well, I think they all... That's the folly, but... Right. But aren't they also signaling to the base that, that they're, they're putting up a fight? They're also signaling to Sean Hannity and Fox and others who are egging them on, aren't they? Yes, they have an audience, and that audience is amplified over and over again by the media. I mean, there's one reason why this has never existed before, although you notice other demagogues in American history have used new media like the radio, <laughs> Huey Long, Father Coughlin. But they have really used this sort of opinion, celebrity, you know, right-wing, left-wing media confab that we have to make it appear as if there are more people who care about those issues than actually do in America. So this is why the polls are always wrong. People don't answer their phones anyway, but they are reading things because they are amplifying the voice of what I believe to be 
a minority of voters. But with, you know, as we saw in Germany in World War II, with the silence of those who just sat there and watched the horrors of the Holocaust, you know, that is the thing that I think is the most distressing thing to me, that the good people, you know, the Republicans who should know better, that there's only one Mitt Romney is truly terrifying. Well, you you know that Mitt Romney spends $5,000 per day on personal security for himself and his family because of threats against him, because he's opposed Trump? Yes. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, and maybe he can do it because he's rich. I mean, he confessed that, apparently, in this new book, that others were very worried about that because some of these members, you know, as Joe Biden, he didn't have a lot of money. Some of these other members don't have a lot of money. And they, they're, you know, if you have young children, I can understand. But, you know, at some point, the country has to become more important. And as if we thought the last election wasn't the most important, this election is really, really, really important because it could be the tipping point for showing just how little uh-huh. uh, <laughs> that actual wave affected the public. And so I'm hoping that everyone gets out to vote. I think people should should actually be invested in this election and long earlier than the you know August before. Um, and they need to be. And one good thing about what's going on in Europe is that it is focusing people on what's going on in the House. It's focusing people on what uh, the current president is doing, his strength, his moral clarity, his ability to say we've made mistakes. <laughs> that is the key. Someone who's able to be very tough on issues, but at the same time, see that any principle taken to its extreme will undo itself, right? So the ability, you know, ideologues can't see that they're wrong, can't see that they've ever made mistakes. So that's kind of a brilliant and important combination. I think people are seeing what's going on in the presidency, they're seeing what's going on in the House, they should, and it should be terrifying to those who, you know, both the governing class, but also at kitchen table. We have things to do. We've got budget problems. We've got interest payment problems. And we have threats to democracy around the world. Well, we probably have a government shutdown, won't we? I mean, it seems to me, given what's been going on in the House, it's all been inevitable. uh, Yeah, I, I didn't think that they would go for a third vote on Jordan. I didn't think Jordan would ever even be up for a vote. But apparently that is the Trump wing. But the Trump wing has failed to elect a speaker which shows that at least some people are willing to stand up. And the more they talk about their the violence, the more they're going to gain support. But do you think, that Victoria, that it's, that it's resonating with the public? I mean, one of the problems that Biden's had is getting people to recognize that he was dealt a pretty narrow hand in, in his election, but he's accomplished an awful lot. And yet polls indicate that there's a sort of sense that People are kind of, you know, not angry so much as just, you know, confused and irritable, I guess, about things. They don't think things are as good as they are. They, a lot of people have been saying, you know, the White House has got to promote its successes and it's somehow not penetrating. So given that that sense that's been out there already and now you're talking about arguing on an inflection point in terms of foreign policy, how much do you think the dysfunction in the House is is reversing the scales a little, making people that have been feeling a little discomfort about the economy 
maybe they'll see what the real writing on the wall is. I know I'm not being particularly articulate here, but do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I think people can, uh, they can prioritize. You know, we do that in our lives. What's the most important right now? Is there something urgent as opposed to, you know, necessary, et cetera? I mean, I think this allows Biden to say, you know, for those people who just, most Americans don't care about politics. It's actually generally a good thing <laughs> because that means we're not swept up into, you know, <clears throat> revile our fellow citizens. But this causes a lot of people worry on both sides of the question in Israel, and they are focusing on what he is doing. And that's helpful because if they see him to make progress in that area, I think they're more likely to take a second look at what he's done in the domestic area. I mean, it's hard to see that he has in, in your own life in the short time that he's been there, a couple of years, that we're going to have charging stations everywhere. You know, this he has managed to accomplish the single biggest investment in resisting climate change that any president has ever accomplished. And people should start looking at those things because, you know, I know there's a lot of fallout from COVID and all these things. People are tired of crises. I I think part of it is that. And I'm tired too. Um, But we have to put our heads down. You know, the greatest generation survived many simultaneous crises, a war abroad, the depression. They had demagogues as I said, and um, people during those crises, people do, you know, when there is an easy solution, you know, Huey Long wanted to share the wealth. He had this crazy, you know, Ponzi scheme program in which people bought into it and they sent him their money and he was just a grifter. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, these things happen because people want simple solutions. Right, but is that to say that this is in a political DNA. In other words, my sense is that what that a turning point happened in our politics with John McCain in choosing Sarah Palin. It seems to have opened the floodgates for uh, p- people that Fox have brought out that normally didn't vote, that there's this whole kind of nihilistic, know-nothing kind of constituency. And, of course, in the 1850s, you did have the know-nothings. <laughs> so is, is, is this something that we have to accept, that there's a certain percentage, maybe up to 30% of our country, that are just uh, ignorant, angry, and vengeful? Well, I don't think we have to accept that. I mean, I think we are coming out of crises uh, involving the pandemic, which we should not underestimate. I mean, I don't remember precisely how many people died, but it was extraordinary in our history. It caused us to dislocate our economy and our lives. And people are just, you know, just this year, my law school is coming back to regular order where people are going out, getting our jobs done, having normal interactions. It takes a while to recover from a crisis. So I'm not willing to say we inevitably have 30%. I do think that during crises, you're more likely to see those people come out. I mean, we had brown shirts in the United States. We had, you know, popular figures like uh, the flyer um, who, you know, the spirit of St. Louis guy who was a Nazi fanatic. We've always had some people who will take contrarian positions and get a lot of celebrity because of that. Um, But that doesn't mean that average person really wants to be there. I think crises bring these out in people and it also perpetuated Trump's effect. I used to say we, we've never really elected a demagogue, and that's what's been scaring me. You know, Huey Long was, you know, killed eventually. Father Coughlin disappeared in the wake of the crises of World War II. He was disavowed, his anti-Semitism. And uh, he was a radio preacher who got, had a huge Catholic following. So these demagogues uh, disappeared from the scene because of the crisis of events that, that brought us together. 
One, it may be that there's a silver lining in all these horrible events in the Middle East, which is that it will focus and it has focused Republicans. You asked whether there'll be a shutdown. And I'm not so sure that's going to be as long as most people think. I think there is a strong contingent within the Republican Party that cares about Israel. They get funded by Jewish groups. They have a self-interest in in getting back to work. And there are powerful people in the House. On those, all the people on the Appropriations Committees voted against the Jordans of the world um, that want to have a, a, you know, a world order where we're suddenly isolationist. I think that may be a unifying factor, strangely. And and it could result in something that, that's common sense. I mean, the Senate has been saying this for a long time. And I say this to my students, watch what's going on. You know, the House and the Senate are foreign countries. If you watch the Senate, you see they floated and Lindsey Graham floated a proposal to do um, Ukraine, Israel and the border all simultaneously. And that will get you a lot of votes. And that's necessary. You know, we do have border problems. I don't think the president is denying them. He's trying to do something that neither party probably wants because they want to politic on it. Because he really wants to solve the problem because he's a problem solver. But that's this is a good good way to get it done. And in a way that, that we can know how much we're spending so that we can, can control the interest rates and other things that are were unexpected um, that came down the road. So I, I see this perhaps as galvanizing people to stop this nonsense of Fox News and really pay attention to getting problems solved. Well, Victoria knows from your lips to God's ears, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Ian. Have a great day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Victoria Norris. It's a professor of law at Georgetown University Law School and the executive director of the Center for Congressional Studies at Georgetown Law, a nominee for the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. She served as counsel to Vice President Joe Biden and prior to that served as an appellate lawyer in the Justice Department and as special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And her latest book is The Impeachments of Donald Trump, an introduction to constitutional argument. And her latest article at Ms. Magazine is The Supreme Court's Blind to gender violence. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into Biden's $105 billion request for aid to Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, Taiwan, and the border, which was sent to a leaderless house with no one constitutionally able to act on it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of Tomorrow of the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. And he has a recent article at The Guardian, The Ukraine War is in a New Phase. Biden must rethink the U.S. position. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wertheim. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And Biden delayed his national address to the nation about Ukraine because of what happened with this war breaking out between Israel and Hamas. But he eventually on Thursday did make a speech combining both theaters of war and talked about us being at an inflection point. Now, 
Of course, we've heard that about climate change. In other words, things are really bad and they're going to get worse. So what do you think in terms of an inflection point? Is, is that an appropriate way to describe the situation we face, particularly in Ukraine? It does seem to be uh, an inflection point with respect to Ukraine, because U.S. support for Ukraine is going to dry up uh, in the not-so-distant future unless Congress is able to appropriate more funds for Ukraine, whether there's some kind of more world historical inflection point. You know, I'm a historian, and I, I will just say that people often have trouble predicting the future, so... I'm not so sure about that, but it is clearly the way Biden thinks about his role as president. There's uh, one inflection point after another with respect to American democracy, with respect to the global order. And Biden made a very assertive case in his nighttime address that the threats to the United States uh, and the world keep rising and therefore the United States uh, has to do significantly more to safeguard what Biden sees as its interest, starting with uh, supplying two U.S. partners, Ukraine and Israel, in their respective conflicts. Well, in his address, he said that we're going to stand behind Israel and Ukraine in the face of Russia and Hamas, who were trying to, quote, completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. And then he went on to say, quote, we cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. Now, of course, uh, Peskov in the Kremlin has reacted with indignation, saying rhetoric is hardly suitable for responsible leaders of state and it can hardly be acceptable to us. Then the White House sent uh, a request to Congress for $106 billion for money for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, Taiwan and the border. And, of course, there's really nobody on the Republican end to receive this request because there's no speaker. It went to Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry, but he really can't act on it. So what does it say about the United States? Irony is abound here. Biden's basic argument is that the United States is the indispensable nation, a phrase he repeated, uh, quoting Madeleine Albright from the 1990s, the former Secretary of State. He said American leadership is what holds the world together. He talked about defending two democracies against entities that seek to uh, extinguish those countries. And yet he can't even present his request for almost $106 billion of emergency funding to Congress because there is no Speaker of the House. And meanwhile, you know, Donald Trump uh, is polling quite well, neck and neck, with Joe Biden as we head into the general election for 2024. So, you know, America is simultaneously, according to Biden, teetering on the brink of catastrophe for its democracy and also underpins the entire uh, order of the world and is defending democracy very far from from our shores. And, and then when you think about, you know, Ukraine and Israel, th these are both, you know, democracies in a certain sense, but Ukraine scores quite low, or at least it did prior to the, the full scale Russian uh, invasion in uh, 2022, due to the 
uh, corruption that's endemic in the country and Israel, a democracy in a sense, but not for the Palestinians uh, who are occupied, have their land occupied by Israel. And just before the Hamas attacks of October 7th, uh, Israel was roiled by uh, the attempt of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to try to diminish the power of the judiciary. And so Israelis were out in the streets fighting for their own democracy. So, you know, in many ways, what the president's describing sounds like a throwback to the the 1990s or even uh, to uh, the George W. Bush foreign policy, robust support for for democracies uh, standing against terrorists and tyrants. The, the situation we face is just uh, abounds with with contradictions you know, and uh, you know, vast uncertainties even about the ability of the United States to deliver on commitments it makes internationally and to safeguard its democracy at home. So in terms of Biden's statement on Thursday uh, that they're standing behind Israel and Ukraine in the face of Russian, Russia and Hamas who were trying to, quote, completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. Of course, Hamas annihilated, you know, a sliver of the territory against right up and next to the um, Gaza and, and were brutal and, and despicable in what they did, causing 1,400 deaths and capturing to 203 hostages and there's still 200 missing as well. So that is not the same as Russia annihilating Ukraine. So what is to be done about what's Russia doing? Because at the Belton Road Forum in Beijing, where Putin met with Xi and, and also with Orban of, of Hungary, at the press conference, Putin was asked about the um, U.S. saying that Russia's already defeated. And he, he sort of laughed and said, yeah, they say we're already defeated. And more or less saying they're, they're going to sort of have to eat those words. So where do, you, where do we stand in terms of Russia's determination, according to President Biden, to annihilate Ukraine? Russia continues to have the desire to conquer Ukraine uh, and extinguish Ukraine's existence. Uh, and, you know, it is a, a perilous moment because Ukraine is dependent on U.S. support and um, in the United States, there's been a, a steady erosion of political support uh, in the form of votes in Congress for authorizing aid to Ukraine. Uh, and so I think we're going to see the White House continue to make the case uh, about its U Ukraine strategy in the coming weeks and months, presumably as we get a Speaker of the House who can who can conduct business. But, you know, I think signs show that Vladimir Putin, as you mentioned, it does not show any uh, desire to stop the war. He, you know, thinks that uh, time is on his side and he can wait out uh, the Ukrainians and wait out their Western partners. And we don't know whether uh, he's right about that or wrong about that. But I think President Biden has to think really carefully about how to shore up domestic political support. And that means winning over some of the Republicans who have previously authorized aid for Ukraine, uh, but have become no votes 
in recent months. You know, their complaint is that the war effort does not appear to be uh, succeeding, uh, given the rather paltry results of Ukraine's counteroffensive uh, this year, and that the war effort is looking like an endless war, although, of course, the United States is not a direct uh, belligerent in the war. Uh, and the United States specifically does not have a, a, an attainable uh, set of objectives and a clearly defined set of objectives that would give us some sense of how this war will come to an end and how the billions of dollars in U.S. assistance will eventually come to an end. And, you know, that's the main argument that the Republican critics are making. And I think those criticisms have some merit. And the White House, I think, would be well advised to to refine its objectives and, you know, explain more clearly what the United States uh, would support in terms of Ukraine trying to take back territory, what the United States can live with, and how the United States seeks to get the parties uh, to some place where there can be a ceasefire and potentially resolve some of some of the issues. It's not going to happen in the near term, but you know, one thing, uh, for example, that the White House could do would be to make clear that the United States wouldn't support a direct uh, Ukrainian attempt to liberate Crimea, to bring Crimea back uh, under the control of of Kiev. That's something that uh, could uh, is one of the few things that could plausibly lead Vladimir Putin to order uh, the use of nuclear weapons. And it's also a dispute that dates back to to 2014, when Russia illegally seized Crimea, uh, and therefore doesn't need to be, for the United States at least, part of of the reason why it's it's supporting Ukraine's war effort. So there are measures like these that could, I think, help to restore a sense of um, bipartisan confidence that the United States uh, has a viable strategy in in Ukraine, and that, in addition, you know, trying to start to use diplomacy to bring the parties together, not with any expectation of a of a short term uh, transformation because I don't think either side is is ready to accept the status quo, but to start the discussions, to start to test what the parties really want and what they could live with, that's it, it's a process that takes a good deal of time. And if President Biden is reelected uh, next year, then perhaps we could see some interest uh, both in Moscow and Kiev in sitting down in a more serious way with a view toward toward a ceasefire. So measures like these, I think, would would show that uh, Biden is serious about the conflict coming to a conclusion and is also going to limit some of the costs and escalation risks that come with a an, an open-ended conflict. But at this point, even Ukrainian uh, fighters have crossed the Dnipro River in Kherson region, uh, so they're now on the east bank building a bridgehead. I don't know the extent to which that may be some kind of a game changer. We'll have to wait and see. But in terms of the $106 billion that Biden asked to, in a sort of dead letter that went to the dysfunctional House, of course, Lindsey Graham in the, on the Senate side suggested they basically tie aid for Israel with uh, aid for Ukraine. 
61.4 billion of the 106 billion is goes to military assistance to, to Ukraine. 14.3 billion goes for military assistance to Israel. 9.2 billion goes to humanitarian assistance for the victims of wars in Ukraine and and in uh, Gaza. Four billion is dedicated to countering China's influence, uh, particularly uh, half of which goes to uh, Taiwan, and another 3.4 billion goes to boosting the U.S. Uh, submarine fleet, and another 13.6 billion will go to addressing uh, the surge of migrants on the southern border with 1,300 more border patrol agents, 1,000 more law enforcement officers, 1,600 more asylum officers, and 375 more immigration judges. So do you think those sweeteners for the Republicans uh, will be sufficient for them to get over whatever their objection is to funding Ukraine? Well, it's really hard to tell without without a speaker. It certainly might work, at least for now, but I still think that we can't ignore the eroding support, especially among Republicans, for aid to Ukraine. First of all, this amount of money, $61 billion for Ukraine, is meant to last through September of next year. So more will have to be appropriated prior to that point um, by, by this Congress. And, you know, it's not just that there are some strange Republican members of Congress being quirky. They are reflecting the views of the country. Support for aiding Ukraine has fallen over time. You know, not that surprising. It tends to happen. But uh, it's been falling, especially on the Republican side. Um, So I think the administration um, can potentially be successful with this tactic of trying to bundle everything together. We will see. But it is also going to have to make some adjustments uh, because we can't keep going through these standoffs uh, where uh, support has dropped uh, among Republicans. uh, And then, um, you know, Ukraine is truly dependent on a uh, a change of, of votes in Washington. Well, Stephen Wertheim, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace and the author of Tomorrow, the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. And he has a recent article at The Guardian, The Ukraine War is in a New Phase. Biden Must Rethink the U.S. Position. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing how much third-party candidates will swing the close 2024 election to Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are David Daly, who's a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, and Unrigged, how Americans are battling back to save democracy. He is a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia, 
and is the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. And he has an article at The Guardian, Why Do Eight Radicals Hold Power Over the Entire U.S. House of Representatives? Welcome to Background Briefing, David Daly. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me back on. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And allow me to answer your question. <laughs> Why do eight radicals hold power of the entire U.S. House of Representatives? And they, of course, were the eight radicals who took down Speaker McCarthy, and it's led to nothing but chaos and endless votes for candidates that don't make it and the paralysis of the House of Representatives. It, to me, the fact that eight could do that out of, what, 435 indicates to me that this is the ultimate in counter-majoritarianism, which is built into our politics in such a toxic way, not just with the Electoral College, but the Supreme Court, etc. So do you see it that way, that this is just, just perhaps a more extreme version of counter-majoritarianism? I do. I think that counter-majoritarianism is a time bomb that has been embedded within all of our governing institutions, and it's going off with alarming frequency, whether we're talking about the counter-majoritarianism of the U.S. Senate, of the U.S. Supreme Court, of the U.S. House, of state legislatures around the country, the threats of counter-majoritarianism within the Electoral College, we see this happening with such frequency in our elections, also now in the in the move on Speaker McCarthy and the inability um, of majorities in the U.S. House to actually be able to get anything done. And it is time that serious people look for serious solutions to try and work around this counter-majoritarianism before it is far too late. So do you think there's a chance of a coalition government forming in the House with the Democrats and a moderate Republican if there's anybody left in the House of Representatives that would fit that description? Um, I think that that makes too much sense and as a result is probably deeply unlikely Listen, tribalism within our political parties runs really, really deep, and it is very difficult to imagine that there are even those five or six Republicans that will dare cross the aisle and make that challenge. Because, of course, were they to do that, they would be signing their own death warrant in Congress. They would immediately be primaried. Um, and because just about 80 to 90% of our U.S. House districts are radically uncompetitive and rigged for one party or the other, they would face a, a primary challenge in a, a low turnout summer election within just the base that would be dominated by the extreme, and they would likely lose. And then we would see a Congress in 2025 that is even more extreme and radical than this one. So what we are looking at is a situation that is dangerous and getting scarier 
by the day if we don't really think much more seriously about the kinds of reforms that can get us out of this situation. Reforms like ranked choice voting, whether in in speaker elections, in primary challenges right now, in these uncompetitive districts where with seven or eight different candidates, you can have a winner at 32, 33% of the vote move on and be effectively anointed because there's no challenge from the other party in the fall. When you look at those eight radicals who blew up the house and in effect, the wishes of those eight overruled the wishes of nearly 214 other Republicans, right? I mean, I mean, usually when the score is 214 to 8, 214 wins, but not in this case. But if you look at Matt Gates, if you look at the folks who who made that challenge, if you look at Mark Meadows, who who made this kind of challenge to John Boehner and took down the speaker via very similar uh, tactics a decade ago, these guys have something in common. They won plurality primaries in wildly gerrymandered districts uh, with a percentage in the 30s or low 40s of the vote and then waltzed into Congress um, and lit the institution on fire. We know the problem. We know how these folks got here. We see what the incentives are in the system and it's it's time to fix it. Well, specifically, though, in terms of the outrageous disproportionality of all of this, is that at the, at the end of the day, 36,000 primary voters cast their ballots for Matt Gates seven years ago. And Matt Gates, of course, instigated the whole coup that led, led to the current dysfunction in the House and the paralysis. So Gates got 36,000 primary voters who cast a ballot for him in seven years ago, but he's been able to stymie 300 million of us. I think that's exactly right. I mean, Gates won about 35% of the vote in a six or seven way primary back in 2016, uh, waltzed into Congress because that district was drawn in such a, a way that whoever won the Republican primary was going to win the district, no matter how few votes they got in that primary. And then the powers of incumbency kept him in office in 2018 and 2020. And the district was gerrymandered again by Ron DeSantis in 2021 uh, in order to um, you know, bolster all of the Republicans in the state. So Gates did not come to Congress with majority support. He did not have anything approaching majority support for his motion to vacate the chair. Uh, he loses this vote within his own party, what, effectively 214 to 8. When you lose a vote 214 to 8, you should actually lose it. The 8 should not have power over all of the rest of us. But that is what is happening in this system that we have set up. We have set up a system that is designed to empower the most extreme and the most radical. We've incentivized them to behave this way. We should not be surprised that this is how they are acting. Sure. 
and Kevin McCarthy was the one who agreed to this insane system. So the thing that bothers me is that so many Americans think that the way to get out of the paralysis of the two-party system is to vote for a third party, and almost 15% of registered voters say they would vote for a third party. And now we're learning, for example, that... Cornell West, who's now running as independent, he started out um, as a Green, he just got the maximum campaign donation from the Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow, the guy that uh, collects Nazi memorabilia and has been uh, a good friend and a patron to Clarence Thomas. He collects um, Nazi memorabilia and Supreme Court justices. <laughs> okay, that's, that's his hobby. So why is he supporting Cornell West? Come on. I mean, uh, any, this is well, when, when Cornell I mean, West was running as a, as a Green. Uh, uh, clearly, he must be very interested in the Greens platform. Perhaps it has something to do with his, his interest in, in, in climate change or political <laughs> reform. <laughs> right. Perhaps well, he uh, has taken some of Cornell West's classes in, in – in, in critical race theory online and um sure. yeah. uh, no i think it's really obvious that harlan crow is trying to make mischief and it's wonderful it's wonderful mischief right and it is possible because of the way our political system in almost every way in american life we value choice and we want choice and yet in our two-party political system, choice is weaponized against us. Um, and third parties, especially Greens and Libertarians and the kinds of third-party challenges that we've seen in, in, in modern American political history, they threaten to be spoilers. And Americans should be able to vote for the candidate that they want to vote for. But the reality of the problem is that the way that the system is set up, that can become a really dangerous proposition. I don't, I don't, I don't have any quarrel with folks who want to vote for third parties. I think we should be able to have more choice in our elections. Clearly right now, as of this date, we are headed towards a Biden-Trump rematch that a majority of Americans don't want to see. Um, so I get the the desire to have additional choices. The trouble is that the system is set up in such a way that voting for those candidates threatens to create either winners in states that do not have 50% of the vote. And as we know, you can win a state at 35 or 36 percent of the vote and they get all of the electoral votes and it sets up you know it sets up another counter majoritarian possibility again ranked choice voting in these elections would allow americans uh to vote for the the presidential candidate who they that they like most first and then to rank 
a backup choice second. Um, and it's such common sense. We see it used in Maine. We see it used in Alaska. We see it used in cities around the country to actually get to a majority winner. And we very much need it in in states for presidential election. Sure. But that well, let's talk about some of the, you know, I mentioned Cornell West uh, as a, running as an independent who it will ultimately be a spoiler along with, there's an article by Jeffrey Tubin at uh, ML Weekly uh, about uh, called How RFK Jr. Tried to Frame Two Innocent Black Men for a Murder That His Cousin Committed. Now, if that article gets some traction, you'd think a lot of people would wake up and not vote for RFK Jr., particularly any any African-American voter. But w- combined with that unfortunate revelation about RFK Jr. and what Cornel West is taking money from a right-wing billionaire who's best friends with the, the furthest right justices on the Supreme Court. What, what he said in his defense, Cornel West, is that the two-party system, quote, is an impediment to the flower of American democracy. Now, We've just we've already discussed that. Yeah, we all agree with it. There's something wrong. You ought to be able to vote for anybody you like, and and we we need more choices, not less. And the Tweedledum Tweedledee thing is is clearly not sufficient. But why not put your efforts behind what you're trying to do? Get more states to have ranked choice voting beyond Maine and Alaska, rather than run a spoiler campaign. If these people are serious about reforming America's electoral system, then don't run and grandstand and, and you know, collect money and, and be on TV and, and exercise your vanity or whatever the hell's going on with you. Why not do the, you know, the hard work of getting, getting into the trenches and change the electoral systems to rank choice voting? That seems to me a more honorable way. Well, I think you just answered your own question, Ian. It's a lot more fun to go on TV and to hold rallies around the country and uh, do events and uh, collect hotel points, right? Um, The hard work in the trenches is difficult, um, and but it is the honorable work. I think that is the groundwork that has to be laid before we are able to really utilize our voice and choice in in presidential elections um if we were to if we were to have ranked choice voting in states when folks cast their ballot for president they would not have to worry about about spoilers and i think that this would be good for major parties as much as it would be good for third parties it it's one of those fixes that's a win-win um because what we saw after RFK made his announcement, for example, was immediately Democrats and Republicans turning their fire on him, worried that he would be a spoiler. We see the same thing over Jill Stein or, you know, in 2016 or uh, Gary Johnson or any of the of the uh, libertarian candidates. Folks still talk about uh, Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan from Florida back in 2020. And the parties would not have to worry about spoilers and the voters would not have to worry about spoilers and the third party candidates could focus on on ideas um, and we could actually have the kinds of debates that 
uh, we need to have. I think you haven't even mentioned, though, uh, what I think could be even a, a bigger challenge, which is no labels is on the ballot right now in 11 states, and they still don't have a presidential candidate. But I, I think it's possible that if they were to run the kind of Democrat-Republican campaign that they've talked about, if they were able to put together a ticket of Chris Sununu, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, and Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, um, imagine that as a third-party choice in some of the states where they're on the ballot that have been so close recently, like Arizona and North Carolina. Um, I could I could see that really throwing the race into tumult. Well, it'd throw, it'd throw the race for Trump, wouldn't it, largely? It could throw the race in any number of directions, all of them dangerous and counter-majoritarian, because you would see the risk of multiple states awarding all of their electors to candidates that maybe won 35 or 40 percent of the votes in winning the state. But it also sets up the possibility of nobody reaching 270 electoral votes. You would only have to have a third party win, what, maybe one or two states to keep the system under 270. And then the vote goes to the House, um, which doesn't vote by member, but it votes by state delegation from gerrymandered states. Republicans right now have have 26 delegations, Democrats 22. But imagine if the House doesn't have a speaker. Or imagine if radicals like Gates don't want to see a candidate and they keep the speakership empty until, until January 20th. What do we do? Who becomes president then that the kind of shenanigans that we could see in the House and the Senate if no candidate wins 270 votes would make the kinds of shenanigans we're looking at now, the chaos in the House, look like minor leagues compared to what could happen if the presidency were at stake. Well, David Downey, you've given, given us a lot to think about, and I thank you for joining us. Anytime, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Daly, who's a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy and Unrigged, how Americans are battling back to save democracy. He's a digital fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia and the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. And he has an article at The Guardian, Why Do Eight Radicals Hold Power Over the Entire U.S. House of Representatives? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,